Let's read those verses together. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So this is Paul's prayer request for these Ephesian Christians whom he knew very well. Don't forget, he ministered there for three whole years. What is the Apostle Paul going to ask for? What is it that's on the heart of the Apostle Paul for Christians that he has known for an extended period of time? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you something. May give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know. And he's going to list three things here. That you may know, that is, enter into continuing growing knowledge of three things. And they all start with what is. What is, first, the hope of his calling. Secondly, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And thirdly, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then he's going to expand on that third one a little bit here in the phrases that follow. Speaking of that power, he describes it according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him out from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. <laughs> it's a big string of thoughts there from the apostle, isn't it? And sometimes because they're, they're such large descriptive words and really grandiose words and thoughts, uh, I can say for myself over the years as a growing Christian, I tend to, my mind tends to just focus on one little piece of it and kind of forget the rest of it. And, and that's part of the whole growth process anyway, right? So maybe tonight, one little piece of this is all some of us will get out of it. But the whole part of this is so enriching. And if we can get this in a deeper and greater way, and we should be as we grow as Christians, this should be a primary meditation for us. We will enter into a knowledge of the Lord that will enable us in areas of service, in areas of sanctification, that is personal holiness and growth that will be beyond anything you could ever imagine. It all centers in your personal knowledge or personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's where the growth is. That's more important than where you go to school. That's more important than going to a Bible college or a seminary or a DITV or any other kind of training program. You can do this right in your own home. 
You can grow in your epigenosis, your personal relationship. That's what the word knowledge there means. With the Lord, all you need is the scriptures and an open heart. And you already have the Holy Spirit if you're born again. But let's put this in the framework of the flow of thought here in chapters 1 through 3. We, we talked about that on Sunday, stepping back and seeing the big picture and then moving in on the parts and then moving back to the whole. You remember he began here in chapter 1, verse 3, down through verse 14 of chapter 1 with, with a hymn of praise. You could call it a doxology because a doxology means that. It means a hymn of praise to the Lord. And he's praising him in for two primary things. We, we focused upon the, the idea of adoption as sons there in verse 5, which is primarily linked to the work of the Father. And then in verses 7 through 14, his work of redemption, which was enabled by the Lord Jesus and sealed by the Holy Spirit. So the other two persons of the Godhead involved there. Adoption, redemption. And we expanded upon that. He tells us the adoption includes understanding that we've been chosen before the foundation of the world, that we've been predestined to a destiny, something in that adoption, what that sonship rights and privileges of sons of God. We're not sons of God, naturally speaking, right? We're sons of Adam by nature. But when we're born again, we become sons of God and enter into certain rights and privileges. And he wants us to know about them. How many of them do you know about? Can you list them, what your rights and privileges are? You should be able to. Those are things that we should be focusing upon because that will enable us to have victory over temptation. That will enable us to be fruitful in service. That will enable us to think like God thinks more and more. So when we're making decisions about relocation, when we're making decisions about how we function in a particular ministry, He will guide our thinking when we're thinking more like his thoughts. So it, it's, it's core to the whole Christian life, isn't it? And so then when he talked about redemption, he focused on the issue of forgiveness of sins in verse 7. And then entering into a greater understanding, we may use the word revelation, in verses 8, 9, and 10. A greater understanding of what his purposes are for us in his church. And the church is what? A building? The church is an organization. It is the body of Christ, the community of believers that have been knit together by His Holy Spirit. So we are one, unified together with one another and with our head, the Lord Jesus Himself. How many heads are there in this body? There's only one. <laughs> it's not a multi-headed body. There's only one head, and it's the Lord Jesus. And make, that's easier for me to get my head, my head around my my understanding around to just focus on all these different ones who want to be head. <laughs> I can focus on what the Bible says. There's only one head. You don't have to worry about all these other ones that want to exalt themselves to that because God doesn't recognize that. He recognizes one head. That's why we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Not because we just want to have some sort of ritual that we tack on to the end of our prayers. Because we really believe that if we pray in His name, the Father will hear us. If we don't, we can't be sure the Father hears us. We're just wasting our time being religious. And then he 
informed us of the inheritance beginning there in verse 11 down through 14. And that inheritance he's going to expand upon in the prayer. So I'll wait and, and talk about that when we get to that item in the prayer. But that inheritance is sealed by his Holy Spirit. So if you have an inheritance that's sealed, that means it's sure, right? It's, and if it's sealed by the Spirit of God, can you lose it? You can lose your inheritance here on earth in a lot of different ways. But this is an inheritance you can't lose. And he wants us to know what that inheritance is. He's going to expand upon that a lot in chapter 3. So that's chapter 1 in the first 14 verses. And we have this prayer beginning in verse 15. And I would submit to you to think about it. We're trying to think of uh, the whole picture from chapter 1 through chapter 3. That really what he begins in verse 15 with this prayer. I would say 1, 3 to 14 kind of forms an introduction to the whole book. That doxology. And then from 115 all the way through the end of chapter 3 will form a section here that's bound on both sides by two prayers. A prayer, this one in 115 through 23, a prayer for growth in the knowledge of Christ. Right? So that would you could say understanding God's purposes, which sometimes the Bible links that with the word light. You want to link that with the word light. So understanding God's purposes for you as an individual, for us corporately, for his church, the entire church age. He wants us to know. That's the, the essence of this prayer. There are a lot of details to it, as we'll see. And then the prayer in chapter 3 is, beginning in verse 14 through verse 21, is a prayer for them to experience God's love. So a prayer for understanding his purposes, a prayer for experiencing his love, light, love, if you want to think of it in just one word that way. And in between those two prayers, he develops what he begins to uh, pray for in chapter 1. He develops that in chapter 2 and 3 with the idea of regeneration, reconciliation, revelation. Okay, we won't get into those tonight. Well, Lord willing, expand on that a little bit on Friday night in the will of the Lord. But regeneration, verses 1 through 10, one of the classic statements in the whole New Testament on regeneration, what it means to be born again, right here, verses 1 through 10. And God has his in mind, he has in mind a masterpiece. That's what the word in verse 10 means. Workmanship, in my version here, it's the word in the Greek, it's poema. We get our word poem from it, a poem. If it's really good, we sometimes think of it as a masterpiece, don't we? Or a masterwork of that particular author. That's the word that's used here. And so masterpiece uh, is a good translation of that word. We may, not, <laughs> we may not see it. Hillsong United has a song titled Tapestry. That his hand of grace is, is molding us like a tapestry. I like that. that. That's a good picture of what it's, I think it's probably this verse they have in mind. We, we may not look at ourselves and really see, I don't look like much of a masterpiece maybe to you. But to him, I am. And to him, you are. If you're a child of God. Doesn't that change your whole outlook on life? On your priorities, on how 
You worry about what other people... I'm a masterpiece. I've been brought from death to life. That's enough to, to show masterpiece, but there's a lot more facets to that, right? And if I'm a masterpiece and I recognize you're a child of God and you're a masterpiece, I'm going to hold you in a lot more respect than maybe I would have otherwise, right? And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, down through verse 22, the issue of reconciliation, bringing together the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new humanity. One new man. Out of two. And we'll expand upon the importance of that. And then in chapter 3, Paul says, I got this by revelation. Paul says, I didn't get this from any of the other apostles. I didn't get this by cognating, (laughs) by philosophizing, by reading Socrates. I got this by direct revelation from God. I think this is what he got down at Mount Sinai when he was in the Arabian desert for three years. I think this is where he got it. But I can't prove that (laughs) other than the references in Galatians to Mount Sinai in Arabia. There are two of them. But anyway, so we come back then to this prayer. That's what I want to focus on tonight. The prayer in chapter 1. The prayer for understanding. Because this is so important. There are a lot of big words in here and it kind of scares us away from it sometimes. But we just need to systematically work through it. And I think we will really get a deeper handle on what he's trying to to say here. Now don't forget. One of the things, as you begin in verse 15, after I heard of your faith and your love for the saints. Wait a minute, Paul. You're talking like you're a little remote from these Ephesian Christians. Uh, You had the school of Tyrannus there for, for two years, day and night, teaching the word of God. You know these people, these Ephesian Christians. And that, and for that reason, and for a couple other reasons that I didn't go into in verses 1 and 2 in the introduction to the letter, some believe this letter was a circular letter, that it didn't just go to the Ephesian church, that it went to the Ephesian church and the other six churches in Asia Minor that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And the reference in Colossians chapter 4 that they would read the letter from the church of the Laodiceans, which we don't have, many believe that that is this Ephesian epistle that was circulating, and now it was in Laodicea by the time Colossians got their letter. It could be. That's a speculation. We know it really doesn't matter in one sense, because we know it's part of the Bible, and so it is for all Christians anyway. But that helps to explain why Paul says the thing he does here in verse 15. When after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for most of the saints. Did I read that right? You notice he's defining what it is to be a Christian here. And you know, would you link love and faith together? I thought you just had to believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. And he's saying you've got to have love for the saints too. They both go together, don't they? If someone really is born again, they're going to love the saints. And they're going to love all the saints. Even the ones that are kind of like porcupines when you get close to them. They stick you a little bit. So your love for all the saints. And not just for the saints in your little meeting. I'd say that it's not a little meeting in the sense of little in importance, but little in the sense of compared to the big church of believers all over this world. (laughs) 
We are little compared to that. And compared to the church when you include the saints from the last 2,000 years almost, all over the world. This is a small company compared to that company. That's what I mean. You with me on that? I'm not trying to put anybody down here. And, and so we recognize that the Lord wants us, and we were just doing that. We're thinking beyond just little me or my little family or my church family or just the believers in Hollywood. See how it's broadening out. Or just the believers in South Florida or just the believers that go to Camp Horizon. Oh, no, there are other camps. Oh, there are other camps? Other than, yeah, there are other camps. Brothers going up to one in Tennessee. There's one in northern Georgia. There are other camps. See? And there are people in Bolivia and Peru and Zambia. That's how he wants us to think. The, your love for all the saints. Because we're all part of the same family. He's going to use that term, household of God, in verse 19 of chapter 2. All the same family. He'll talk about in chapter 3, the family of God, whom everyone, the whole family, verse 15, in heaven and earth is named. Some of them were already in heaven by 61 A.D. See, some had been martyred. The whole heaven, the whole family in heaven and earth, all one name, the Lord Jesus' people, see. So he says in verse 16 of chapter 1, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. We talked about this on Sunday night a little bit. I won't expand on it. But just to be thankful for your fellow Christians, every one of them, to stop and take time during the, your calendar year to do that. Work through the phone list or however you choose to do it to thank the Lord. Just thank the Lord for them. That will sometimes help us overcome problems we have with them. If we're thanking the Lord for them, we can't be thinking mean thoughts about them at the same time, usually. Some of us are able to do that, but that's something the Lord wants to get us out of, right? He wants us to start thinking like He thinks, with forgiveness and, and desires for reconciliation and, and not talking behind the back and not stabbing behind the back and all that stuff that goes with the world. So do, I don't even cease to do this. And the Apostle Paul was busy. You might you say, well, yeah, he, he, he didn't have a job. You know, he, he didn't have anything to do. He's sitting around. He had time. I don't have time to pray like, oh, yeah, you do. People say that to me sometimes. I'm just as busy as you are. Probably busier in some respects. I'll challenge you to that. I'll challenge you to my work, my work week. It's way more than 40 hours. Yeah, the, none of us have time. If we want to look at it like that, we all can make time if we want to, if it's a priority, see. Paul never ceased to give thanks for these people. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, now this is, he's moving into what that prayer request is, begins with God. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of all glory, the glorious Father, may give you something. Now, these are believers. They already have eternal life. They already have the Holy Spirit. They've already had a lot of growth and training at Apostle's own hand. He was there. And he's praying that God would give them more? <laughs> what does that tell us? That spiritual growth is progressive. It's a process. And just to give you a little hint, looking down the road a little bit, you'll never fully get there. 
We are all a work in progress, and we all are working in that direction, hopefully, toward that model he has for us in sanctification. And we all need to be patient with each other in how we're getting there. And we all need to be helping each other and praying for each other, not putting stumbling blocks in each other's way so we fall, but helping each other. And when we do fall, being right there to pick them up and patch them up and get them going again, not castigating them and trying to throw them out, but trying to help them, right? Totally different attitude in the world. We're a community. I am my brother's keeper. To answer, not our president, but to answer Cain in the Bible. When Cain was asked, where Abel was, am I my brother's keeper? You know, he's talking to God that way. Don't ask me. I've got more important things to do. I don't want to be like him. You know what happened to Cain's civilization? The flood. All of Cain's civilization, and it was a very advanced civilization, probably more advanced than ours in a lot of ways, destroyed in the flood, you see. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the full knowledge or experiential knowledge, because that word knowledge there is not gnosis, but epigenosis. It has this idea of experience linked with it, not just head knowledge. So in the personal knowledge, in the full knowledge, in the experiential knowledge of him. And the word spirit here, in my Bible, it's in this, with a small s, and, and commentaries divide on whether he's referring to the Holy Spirit or our personal spirit. Either one would work there. But I think I would go with the translators of the New King James that it's, it's our own spirit that he would give us a spirit, a teachable spirit, a spirit that wants to grow in wisdom and in revelation of the knowledge of him. Meaning we don't have it, number one. Meaning, number two, we need it. And number three, meaning we're depending on God for it. We can't get it apart from him because this is a prayer request asking God to give it, right? Wisdom and a greater opening of understanding, revelation, unveiling of God's purposes in his word. I'm not talking about some prophetic utterance that somebody's going to give you outside of the Bible. I'm talking about from his word. That's what Paul's talking about here. The spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And you say, well, well, what does that look like? Well, that's what he's going to cover in chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. That's what he's unfolding here in the letter. Okay? But before he just unloads the truck on him and gives it to him, he prays that God would give him a spirit to receive it. Isn't that a great idea? That's what some of the brethren prayed already tonight. That we would have a heart to receive it. Because we don't naturally, do we? Naturally, our hearts are in rebellion to God. They don't want to receive it. They think they're independent of God. Our heart in Adam thinks that it can stand without him, thinks we know everything. We don't need his help. Bible says, well, you can read it in verse 1 of chapter 2. You're dead in trespasses and sins in your old nature, and it's still that way. He'll tell us in chapter 4 that you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 23, and, and that you need to keep putting on the new man created on, in the image of God and put off that old man which continually grows according to deceitful lust. That old man is still growing and it's evil inside of you. It didn't stop growing in evil when you got saved. 
It's still as evil as it was, but more evil. That's why he prays for the spiritual armor in chapter 6. He presents that to us. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. <laughs> Isn't that a great phrase? He's not talking about these eyes, right? The, some of the versions translate the eyes of your heart, which you could translate it. And some have said that that was a phrase from some of the Greek poets of the first century. And maybe it was. I don't know if we can prove that. It doesn't matter, really. But it's a, it's a neat phrase to talk about entering into a greater understanding, right? The eyes of your mind. Your mind doesn't have eyes, but it's the idea of Seeing and learning and growing. We can, we can relate to that from our physical eyes, right? That's what he's saying. That you may know three things. First, what is the hope of your calling? Or, or really, what is the hope of his calling? Notice, I've circled in my Bible, his calling, his inheritance, his power in these two verses. And that's important to see because it's all wrapped up in him. And he talked, he's already really begun to explain the word hope there is certainty or assurance. So the assurance or the certainty of your calling. When God called you and you responded to the gospel and believed, that's the calling, what theologians call the effectual call as opposed to the general call. There's the general call to all whosoever will come. And receive Christ as Savior. That's the general call. The effectual call is those who hear the message and respond to it. And it has an effect on them. That's what effectual means, right? And they, and they trust in the Lord. But they didn't invent that on their own, see? It was His calling. He called out. We responded to His calling. He called out. He may have used the radio to do it. He may use somebody at work to do it. He may have used the television to do it. He may have used a track laying on the ground when you were walking on the sidewalk. Whatever he chose to use, he was calling and seeking you and me. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Don't ever give up, Lord. Don't ever give up doing that. He won't. It's part of his nature. So that you may know what is the certainty of his calling of you personally. Now, I believe he's largely dealt with that in chapter 1, 3 to 14. In some of the beautiful things he said there. But he'll pick up on that in chapter 4, verse 1. And expand it in very practical terms when he comes back to, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Same word. The word church, ecclesia, comes from the same idea. Called out ones. He called us out through the gospel, and we responded to it. He says, I want you to know the certainty of it. You know how practical that is? You know how easy it is we get discouraged? Do you ever get discouraged as a Christian? You look at some of the things Brother Aaron was saying in prayer, do you get discouraged? Do you ever get despair? You realize spiritual depression even is a real thing for Christians to get into? And it is a vortex that the longer they stay in it, the more they get trapped by it. And some never come out of it. 
They don't lose their salvation, but they lose a lot of time for service for the Lord. I know people like that. And it's a serious problem. Is there hope for them? If they center in on the certainty of his calling of them. That's what I would urge someone that was struggling in that particular area. I would urge them to memorize 1, 3 to 14 of Ephesians and be thinking about those terms. And that, I think, will cure. And there'd be other scriptures you could use, too. There are lots of other ones. You see how the Bible, I mean, J. Adams, Dr. J. Adams, I should call him, I guess, was right. You know, that nuthetic counseling works. You know, I mean, he came up with that way back, what, 68, brother, was it? That you're able also to admonish one another. Romans 15, 14, nuthetic, oh, nuthetic counseling. Yeah, just to counsel from the Bible itself. But secondly, what are the riches... I like that. That word, remember we said riches, wealth, appears six times in this letter. Tells us a little bit about what direction he's going in his thoughts. He's thinking, when he says, when I'm thinking of God, and when I'm thinking of the church, and when I'm thinking of what Jesus Christ wants to do among you, he says, I'm thinking big wealth. Spiritual riches he's talking about, right? He's going to continue to use that word all the way through. But what are the riches of the glory... Of his inheritance, so far so good. But you see the last prepositional phrase? Where is that inheritance found? In his saints. Oh, oh, I thought it was the new heavens and the new earth. Well, it includes that, of course. But that's not what he's concerned about here. He's not concerned about material things like that. He's concerned about souls, see? You see how that changes your perspective on your fellow Christians? God says that the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in his saints. And how we interact with one another is very important to God because this is His heritage. See? He paid a big price for it. He already told us that through His blood. And we need to enter into the understanding of that even more. We, ne- we never can grow too much in this. And I believe that's what chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 13, is what we'll be seeing him expanding on that. But there are references to that in chapter 4 and 5 as well. That's why he spends so much time in chapter 4, 5, and the first part of 6 on human relationships. Do you notice most of this letter is dealing with human relationships, Christians in the body of Christ? Why? Because the riches of the glory is in... How we interact with one another. How we support, encourage, help, comfort, give instruction to, be there for one another. I'll tell you, in the early church, in Acts chapter 2, you know what what evangelism campaign drew the people into the church more than anything? They didn't, they didn't have, you know, Chris Schroeder's boards, you know, Ezekiel boards weren't out there. They didn't have those back then, as far as I know. They weren't using those, and, and they weren't standing on street corners with tracks. They didn't have all the clever printing techniques that we have now. You know what drew, drew the people, the lost people, into the church in the first 
30 years of the church? The love of the Christians for one another. They saw how the Christians acted amongst one another. They said, I want to be with that group. (laughs) I want to be with that group. Now, some people, their community of support is at the bar, right? You, you may have friends that they go to the bar and they, because you say, well, why do they go there? Because they're received without question and nobody judges them. Does that tell you something? Would you like to be with a company of people that aren't so judgmental of you all the time, that receive you just like you are? Would you like to be with people like that? Well, that, that's what the church is supposed to be like. That doesn't mean there's no discipline in the church. I mean, don't take that to an extreme. But that is the general picture of what the public should see first. Disciplinary things ought to be done kind of in the corner a little bit, except in some cases. Right? Is that what they see here? That's what we should ask ourselves. And I would say that to any assembly. The riches of the glory of his inheritance... In the saints. And there's a, there's a present aspect to that. What we have now in, in our rela- relationships with one another. And then there's a future aspect to that too, of course, right? Being with the Lord in glory. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Which I think of as a, as a, a big sports banquet. Uh, award ceremony like a sports banquet. I mean, I was in sports, so I think of it that way. But different ones can think of whatever you think of in that, that kind of a way. But it's a recognition of Work well done for him. Looking back at our testimony time here on earth. And then reigning with him forever as kings and priests. And your preparation for that time is, should have been done here. If you say, well, no, I'm going to just party here. And, you know, I'm, I, I got baptized and I put my stick in the bonfire camp. And I'm good to go until I die here. And then, then, then I'll start growing after I, after I die. Well, I don't think the Bible doesn't give an indication it works that way. If you're not working in training here now, that's going to affect the later, the future. God is just, right? So there's a present and future aspect to that. And then thirdly, oh, this is really good. If we could just, I'm speaking to myself too. If we could just get a real faith handle on this third one, you know what kind of problems we'd be delivered from? We would really live as super overcomers. The way Paul puts it in Romans 8, right? How many of us really live, if you look at your life over the last five years, how many times were you really a super overcomer over life-dominating sins in your life? Temptations and life-dominating sins. You say, well, I'm so young. Well, life-dominating sins are hitting people at a lot younger age these days. That's part of the technology that we're in. Expect it if you're in pastoral ministry. And for a Christian, there should not be any sin that dominates over us anymore. Yes, there were before. And they're varied, right? So in other words, what, what is a weakness in you may not be a weakness in me. So I can stand up and say, all right, you know, I can. But then you'll be strong in areas where I'm weak, see? So we've got to be patient, forbearing with one another. He gets to that in chapter 4, right? In verse 1 and 2. 
He says, the power. Now, this is important to think about. Power is a big thing in our world today, isn't it? I'm not talking about electric power. That's a big thing, too, because computers need it to breathe. But uh, to run. This is talking about spiritual power, even more important. And there are a lot of people interested in this. The cults are all into power, right? It's just the source of it. Now, some of the commentaries will even go so far, and I think this is going too far, will go so far as to say that he dispenses this power to us, and then we go and work with it. We, we flow with it. I don't see that as the picture in the Bible. He doesn't make us into little gods. He doesn't give us his godlike power so then we can go on because we make a mess of things. We have an old nature still. His power, the Bible describes it as, as walking in the spirit. That's when his power is working through us. Is, is not like filling up a glass where you say, boy, I'm waiting to get filled with the spirit. And when I get to the top of that glass, I got the spirit. I'm filled. Man, I can stop. I can put the Bible on the shelf. I'm good to go for the rest of my life. Wrong. Because you got the wrong picture. It's not a glass. It's a pipe. It's a section of pipe. And water only goes out this pipe if it comes in this pipe, right? If it's not coming in this pipe, then it's not going out that end, right? And if it's coming this end and there's a blockage in the pipe, it's not going out that end either, right? Being filled with the Spirit is being filled with His power, that is is Him coming to work through us to others. He wants to use us as His instrument, but He keeps the power. Praise God that's true. He doesn't give it to any man to go around dispensing it and knocking out and laying out hands and heads and all of that stuff. I went to one of those when I was a young Christian. Forty-five people lined up around the altar, and I was the only one that didn't fall over because I was praying fervently, Lord, if this isn't of you, don't let it happen. And he kept hitting me, and he kept hitting me, and he kept hitting me. And I'm praying, while he's praying to, for me to go down, I'm praying for me to stand up. Charismatic Catholic meeting. That's another story. Those were adventurous days, though. I was a young Christian. I wanted, to, I wanted everything then, you know. I wanted to learn it. But he says... What kind of power toward us who believe? It's according to the working. There are four words he uses here in the Greek, and they kind of build on each other. The word working has the idea, we get our word energy from it. Energia, we get our word energy from it. So, you, you know, energy means that work, you know, that power in, in, in motion, power in action, right? And then the idea of strength and might associated with power. We, we can relate to that to some extent, but to build all four of them together, to link them together like this, Paul does this only in Ephesians. By the way, that, from the standpoint of Bible study, that would invite a hermeneutical question, wouldn't it? Why did Paul do this in Ephesians like this and make such an emphasis on might, strength, power, energy coming from God and not so much in the other epistles? Why would he do that? Well, I answered that on Sunday for you already from Acts chapter 19. Remember what we learned from Acts chapter 19? 
that the Ephesian people were steeped in spiritism and the occult and witchcraft and sorcery. So they were locked in on power, but the wrong source. They were locked in and fascinated with the supernatural, but it was all demonic until the, the gospel came there and Paul came there. When you look at the riot, I mean, I, I sat there in that, in that theater in Ephesus, and you can see the GNC off to the coastline there, and the stage is up there. I mean, it's just like it was almost in the first century. And, and you sit there, and, and these people are chanting for two hours, Six words, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians. I mean, we had to do that at our pep rallies in high school, but we only did it for about 15 minutes. And it was boring then. I wanted to go surfing. But, but we had to sit through these pep rallies. Sometimes we slipped out at the pep rally. Don't tell the kids. But, but, but I didn't, you know, but just this chanting, chanting this repeated words. But, but to do it for two hours, wouldn't you agree with me? That is nothing short of demonic. To, to chant that like that? No, you, don't, you don't see that today. But I think it's coming. I think it's coming. I saw something like it in Frankfurt, Germany, just you know, about ten years ago. And they, these, these, I think it was a lesbian march that was coming, coming down the steps. And they were chanting. And they were all dressed the same. And I thought it was back in the first century. And that's coming here. And they, they all looked like they were hypnotized, looking straight ahead, no expression on their face. That's not natural. <laughs> but anyway, that's why I think this emphasis is in this letter. Paul knew these Ephesians had a tendency this way, and certainly their culture all around them still had that tendency. So he wants to change their focus. Okay, you're into power, you're into energy, you're into working and might, that's good. But let it be God's, get the right source, not Satan's. And that's why we have the spiritual armor also in just this letter and no other letter in such detail. So what does he say about the power? It's the power which he worked in verse 20 in two incidents that he records here. What are the two incidents? If, you, if someone said, where do, you, where do you want to see in the Bible the working of God's power more than anywhere else? Where can I look for it? Where would you take them? To the resurrection and... Come on. The ascension. Right? The ascension, is that what you, or exaltation. The ascension and exaltation are basically the same thing. So not just the resurrection, but the resurrection and the ascension. And one brother, I saw a track that I thought was really good a few years ago, that he adds that when we talk about the gospel, you know, that, that the Lord, that death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and, asc and the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the beginning of the church. That's a sign of the Lord's authority, too, and really important. But here he focuses on those two, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, that's the resurrection. And seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. That's the exaltation. The ascension. It really did happen. But what does that mean? The fact that the Lord Jesus is exalted. What does that mean? Well, he tells us in, in verse 21 to 23. Far above all. Put that on your mirror when you get home. In lipstick or whatever you use. Because this will encourage you 
far above all. And if I'm not ashamed to put Jesus Christ in that place, are you? I hope you're not, because if you don't have him in that place, you're not going to get any victory in your life. <laughs> That's what it takes. Like I told those people at the front door, if you don't believe Jesus is God, you're still in your sins and you're going to the wrong place forever. Think about it. Think about what you're doing. But he didn't just stop with far above all. He elaborated on it a little bit. So let's do that in just a couple of minutes. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Here again, he's talking about the demonic world. Satan and his demonic hosts do have power. Before I was saved, when I was in the university, I took a, a class called Unfinished Man, Unfinished Woman, because I knew I was unfinished and I wanted to learn how to grow. I mean, I was, un, I was lost. And boy, it went into the occult and, and sorcery, and, and we were led into all kinds of strange things. It took me years to get past that and work through it by the Lord. Don't go there. But I learned one thing. It's real. And, you know, we talked about astral traveling, when you travel in your dreams and all that stuff. I mean, that is real. You can do that. But you may leave your body and not come back. And we read about people where that happened. So this is serious. Far above all principles. Don't dabble with the supernatural in the demonic realm. Don't do it. Your young people, God help them. Pray for them now, the millennials and the generation after them. We've got some here tonight because of the techno world we live in. It's going to be very, 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 very hard for them to stay out of this. All their friends are going to be in it. This is already happening amongst the college age. I don't know if, if you have much interaction with them. But it's unbelievable, the stuff. Well, we had it right at Harvard last week, didn't we? The satanic mass they wanted to do or something. The place where there was the first seminary in the United States. How things can change. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. You don't have to worry about it. If you've got a friend that's demon-possessed then there is a place of victory for that person, is there not? In Jesus Christ alone, though. And don't go by yourself to exercise that demon. But if you have a, another brother or if your sister is going to a sister and, and your partner is a praying person, don't take a person that's living a carnal life because that demon will recognize that. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? He'll recognize that. You want somebody that's there that's, that's in the foxhole and won't stab you in the back. I've been in both situations, and it's not fun when you find out the one you're with, who you thought was a mature Christian, wasn't anywhere near ready for this. They were just pretenders, and they ran like the dickens when they saw the demons. Far above, and every name that is named, every dignified name you could think of, Christ is above it. Do we need to apologize for that? Do we need to apologize for that? The Lord's Supper, you know, we're going, you're going overboard. This is a little too much overboard. No, we don't. One man who, I guess he's a believer, he claims to be a believer, had a president of a, a, a denominational seminary in the United States, I won't say who or where, 
says, you know, all this, you know, the, the Plymouth Brethren particularly says they focus so much on Christ they forget the Father. We need to get back to focusing on the Father. Oh, really? That's really nice, brother. What does the Father want us to do here? Focus on the Son. <laughs> so, get, so who's doing what the Bible says to do, you or us? <laughs> it sounds so good at first. But the Father wants the Son magnified and glorified in our midst because He knows that's where the power is. Satan doesn't want that because he knows that's where the power is too. He's talking about, is there any, by the way, I guess I should stop. Is there any doubt in anyone's mind that verses 20 and following is not talking about Jesus Christ? Does someone, someone want to say, well, he's just talking about God. No, he's, he's very specific, isn't he? He worked in Christ when he raised him and put him far above all principality and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. Interesting. So if you're focusing on putting Christ first now, you're getting ready for the age to come because that's where it's going to be then. Satan thinks maybe he's going to get that one if he doesn't get this one. He's in for a rude awakening. In the age to come, he's going to get the lake of fire forever and ever, according to the Bible. And I follow the Bible, not the Satan worshipers. And verse 22 if that's not enough, he put most things under his feet. Is that what it says? What? All? He put all things under his feet? What does it mean to put them under his feet in the Bible? It means he's the final authority. Where do we get that in the Bible? Two very important psalms. That's what he's referring to here. Brother actually read from him in Hebrews chapter 2 on the Lord's Day. What are the two psalms in Hebrews chapter 2? The same two psalms he's dealing with here. Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. Thank you. He shall reign until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And then, what is man? Psalm 8. Crowned with glory and honor. It's in Christ that we find that humanity, you and me, that's what we are. Humanity, you know. Skin, bones, eyes, nose, is dignified. The dignity of humanity is restored through Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. Did you know that? Man lost that dignity in the garden. God restored it through Christ at the cross. That's what's ahead. The dignity of people. See? So he put all things under his feet and... Oh, Paul, man, you, you're going to blow me out of the saddle here. I, that's enough, isn't it? No, he says no. He gave him to be head over all things to the church, too. Something that's a very important topic in this letter, isn't it? Because Paul knows he's speaking to people who are part of the church age and that belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And he is the head over all of them. He'll elaborate on that in chapter 3. And then lastly, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Meaning, not only will he be filled out in the church, but our Lord Jesus will fill out and complete the new heavens and the new earth and the restored universe. It's all about him. And we're not ashamed to say so. Quickly, two ideas and application. First of all, I've already mentioned it. We should never allow any stronghold of sin to dominate us as Christians. I'll say that again. As Christians, we should never allow any stronghold of sin to dominate us. If what Paul has just said is true, right? We can be super overcomers over any life-dominating Temptation or sin. And they're different for every one of us. And then secondly, if all that Paul prayed for is true here, shouldn't we be wanting to grow in these things? Not just grow in the knowledge of them. It begins with growing in the knowledge of them, but then in the living of them too. Right? Transformed lives. That's how it happens. It starts in your mind. As a man thinks in himself, so he is. Proverbs 23, 7 tells it. You are what you think about. Whether you like it or not. What you're thinking about during your quiet times in the day and when you're driving in traffic or you're waiting in line, that's what makes you who you are. That's what Paul's telling us here. So it's important that we allow him to enter in to those thoughts and dominate them. Amen. So thank you for coming out tonight and the will of the Lord will continue on uh, Friday and let's close in prayer. Father, Lord, you are the Father of glory. We thank you for each one that's here tonight. If there's someone here tonight that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, our great and mighty and powerful Lord and Savior, They don't have that personal relationship with him tonight. Lord, don't let them leave this room till they work it out. Talk to one of us and and let us show them from the scriptures how they can know for sure that they're saved, can sleep tonight knowing where they're going to spend eternity. Father, for those of us who do know the Lord Jesus as Savior, we pray that you will help us enter in, enter further into the things that you have for us, rich treasures, a tapestry of grace that you want to work by your own hand in our lives. And we'll give you the thanks and praise, I trust. Be with us as we travel home, too. We thank you for your mercies. Oh, Lord, we need them so much, and they're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We thank you in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.